transmission. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Folks, welcome back. You are still listening to The Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio program. And now, Kentucky's only, question mark, union radio program? I don't know. Maybe we'll see. Let us know. Um, let us know, Kentucky listeners. Uh, really excited to be talking to y'all in Whitesburg, Kentucky, on WMMT Possum Community Radio, 88.7 FM. Um, really excited about that. Uh, you know, uh, before we got on the radio with y'all, uh, we used to say, you know, overtime was previously online only. So we were free from the shackles of the FCC censors, but we are, uh, we're going to be where we, we put on the chains again uh, just to talk to you. So uh, really excited about that. Um, uh, give us a call if you're hearing us for the first time on uh, WMMT in Whitesburg, 8448 99TVLR, uh, 844-899-8857. Uh, leave us a voicemail. Let us know what you thought about the first uh, our debut episode on WMMT. Really looking forward to talking to Tom Sexton from Kentucky's Trillbilly Workers Party podcast here later on in the hour. Uh, Here in just a few minutes, we're going to be talking to Sarah Lazare, uh, editor of Workday Magazine, about the UAW's fight to make sure that the Belvedere assembly plant is reopened. but before we get to uh, before we get to Sarah, I wanted to. There was some more UAW news that I wanted to make sure to bring y'all. And um, uh, before you get into that, I just oh, wanted yeah. to encourage, especially those new listeners, check out our YouTube channel and check out some of the interviews that we've done. Uh, we have had some really amazing guests over the last couple of years, and um, you you might find something you like. Just Cornell check. West interview just went up. <clears throat> that's right. That's ago. right. So yeah. Listen to us talk to Corn- or listen to Adam talk to Cornell. That's right. Uh, we have talked to historians and union leaders and rank and file workers and activists of various stripes. So uh, definitely check out our YouTube channel. Uh, look around. You'll find something you like. I think. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So uh, UAW um, in the news a lot, and uh, last week. Um, Jim Farley and Sean Fain uh, traded barbs in the media again, uh, with Jim Farley being the antagonist, uh, saying that, uh, you know, basically implying that because of the UAW strike last year in 2023, uh, Ford might outsource some of their new production, specifically EV production. This because... Uh, his feelings were really hurt that Ford's Kentucky truck plant went on strike. Um, so said that they will, quote, think carefully about where it builds future vehicles. Um, Ford's uh, highly profitable 
factory in Louisville, Kentucky, the Kentucky truck plant, was the first plant that the UAW shut down with a strike. Um, Farley said, as the company looks at the transition from internal combustion to electric vehicles, quote, we have to think carefully about our manufacturing footprint. Um, Quote, our reliance on the UAW turned out to be we were the first truck plant to be shut down. Farley told the conference. And actually, the article says they were the first, that it was the first plant to be shut down. I don't think that's accurate. That's It's not accurate. In fact, I'm almost positive there were other plants shut down before the Kentucky truck plant because it was a very big deal when the Kentucky truck plant, the Kentucky truck plant was actually the last uh, plant to be struck at Ford. It was the first truck plant to be struck. It was not the first plant to be struck. It was the first truck plant to be struck. That's relevant because trucks are more profitable than other cars. Um, but so anyway, um, the uh, uh, our reliance on the UAW turned out to be we were the first truck plant to be shut down. Farley told a press conference. Really, our relationship has changed. It's been a watershed moment for the company. Does this have business impact? Yes. In response, in response to Farley's comments, Union President Sean Fain said in a statement Thursday that Ford should stay focused on building the best auto industry, not on a race to lower wages. Quote, maybe Ford doesn't need to move factories to find the cheapest labor on earth. Maybe it needs to recommit to American workers and find a CEO who's interested in the future of this country's auto industry. Um, I think that is exactly right. And, you know, the what this does is makes it all the more important that in addition to the record contracts as it relates to compensation that the UAW was able to achieve, uh, which were really remarkable, taking the top wage to $42 an hour and decreasing the progression to three years uh, to get there, 27% raises over uh, the course of the contract before you take into account COLA, uh, which brings the estimated total wage increase of the top rate to 33%, with the starting rate uh, raising uh, over 60% over the course of the contract. I mean, a lot of really good stuff uh, for auto workers at Ford in this contract. In addition to that, they were able to win the right to strike over investment decisions and plant closures at the entire company. So if Ford decides that they want to try to make EVs in Mexico, previously, the UAW, the UAW would have been shackled by, uh, uh, by their contract if, that, if Ford made that decision. They would, have, they would have not been able legally to strike. Now, does that mean they can't strike? No, actually. Illegal strikes are possible, and they're good, and you should do them sometimes. You should recognize the cost and the potential risks, right? But that doesn't mean just because it's illegal doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Um, but... There was that added risk if the UAW had previously struck over an investment decision or a plant closure. But now they have it codified in their contract that during the contract term, they have the right to strike over plant closures and investment decisions. And uh, what it means that they have that legal right is that if they had done it where they had said they would not do it, then they could be sued for even potentially, I think, lost profit. 
right? I mean, there's real serious financial consequences for striking inside of the contract if your contract doesn't allow you to strike for this specific reason. So that gives the UAW so, so much more leverage than they would have had otherwise when it comes to investment decisions like that like that. And so <clears throat> there's going to be a big fight if Farley tries to make good on this uh, on these uh on these threats. And we'll see how much it is uh how, how much these words are just threats, how much they're just uh you know, uh barks from a dog or how much intent there is behind that, right? Um you know, cuz it could be potentially that that He's just saying this and there's and, and he knows what the ramifications would be if he tried to do this. And he just wants to try to scare the UAW into compliance and into, uh, you know, the more uh, docile temperament that they have had for the last 50 years or so. Um, but uh, but but Sean Payne's response really shows that that uh, doesn't seem like that's going to be happening. So we'll, we're going to keep a, a close look on that. And it's it's a very important story. Um, the Biden administration was asked about it. Uh, Karine Jean-Pierre was asked at the White House press briefing. Um, and that uh, they said that the Biden administration will do everything that they can to make sure that Ford does not make good on those threats to outsource production. Uh, they want to do everything that they can to keep Ford producing here. And really it is, it's such a slap in the face to... Um, the American public that Ford of all of all, I mean, really any of these companies are even considering doing this when the American public has subsidized the EV industry and these auto industries to the tune of, of tens of billions of dollars. We just talked last week to Bianca Cunningham in Tennessee, who uh, is organizing around holding Ford accountable to the community in Memphis, where they are building their new blue oval manufacturing plant that has received $3 billion for this one manufacturing plant just from the state of Tennessee. And that's on top of $9 billion from the U.S. government. $9 billion from the U.S. government. And, uh, you know, it, it's worth comparing that number, $9 billion, for one plant, one plant from the federal government, $3 billion from the state. Let's compare that to the total estimated cost of the new expenses from the UAW contract. That total expense. Over the entire four and a half years of the contract, the total increased labor costs is $8.8 billion. It's less than even the subsidy from just the federal government for one manufacturing plant, right? I mean, so, you know, when they throw out these big numbers and they make it sound like, oh, no, you know, labor's going crazy. They're like, they're so greedy. They're taking so much from these poor, poor companies. Just remember, like, oh, $8.8 billion. That sounds like a lot for the workers. What are some other numbers going around in this industry uh, with this company? $9 billion from the federal government for one plant. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's a total farce. It's a total farce. And uh, Sean Fain sees that, sees that for what it is. And it looks like the rest of the UAW is seeing that for what it is. And it looks like the rest of the auto industry is seeing that for what it is. <clears throat> 
We got Sarah Lazare on the line. We do. Fantastic. Sarah Lazare is uh, the editor for Workday Magazine. She was the former editor, uh, uh, the f- former um, web editor for In These Times Magazine, um, and the uh, and has been a guest now two or three times on the Valley Labor Report. The biggest distinction, the of course, The biggest distinction, right? of, obviously. I mean, that's going to be the first thing she lists on her CV, I'm sure, uh, if she ever tries to get into a different job. Uh, Sarah, welcome back to the program. Appreciate the time. Yep. And so your latest piece uh, for, or actually, I don't know, you may you may have post, uh, uh, published something uh, in between, uh, in between, when you published this piece a couple of weeks ago and now, but uh, you published a piece about the UAW's um, attempt to get Stellantis to reopen the Belvedere assembly plant. And this is, a you know, I mean, this is just a, a, it before we, you know, they were able to get it into the contract that they negotiated with Stellantis. And, and so now your article is focusing on how are they going to make sure that this happens, that it's not just words on a page, that Stellantis actually follows through. But before we get to that, can you just talk to us about the significance of reopening an indefinitely idled plant? It's pretty incredible. And, um, you know, when I asked labor scholar Barry Edlin if it was unprecedented. He said it's at least unprecedented for over many decades. Um, So, you know, I heard about the Belvedere assembly plant closing a lot during the UAW stand-up strike. I went down to a practice ticket at the Chicago assembly plant, which is a Ford facility. And when people talked about Belvedere's plant shutting down, it really became a symbol of corporate greed and callousness and willingness to just walk away from communities that have been giving, um, in this case, Atlantis profits for many, many decades. Um, So the idea then that as a result of the strike, the plant would reopen was just stunning. You know, when I heard that, I was like, wow, that is huge news for this town of 25,000 that's been really devastated by the closure. you know, grocery stores near the plant have already closed. Restaurants have gone out of business. There are a lot of workers there who have kids in the local school system who may have relocated for those jobs or who have been in the community for a long time. And they were looking at the real possibility of being uprooted. And then all of a sudden they're not anymore, mm-hmm. um, or at least hopefully they're not anymore. And, um, you know, wh- one thing that really interested me about this story is that Um, A common anti-union trope says that you better not unionize your plant because it'll get shut down. Mm. And this cuts against that. And this says, actually, a strike succeeded in reopening an idled plant, which is almost unheard of. Right. And I I have been, you know... I've been using that a lot. Uh, one of the sessions that we're on is a conservative radio station, and so I am. I, I go on weekly uh, on the morning radio hosts program, and that's something that he's constant. Anytime the UAW comes up, he's like, "Isn't that going to make it?" You know, the the reason that Alabama 
gets has gotten all of these auto jobs uh, is because of, you know, right to work, no unions and stuff. So isn't there a risk that all of these auto jobs are going to leave if the UAW comes in, right? Third partying, the union comes in as opposed to, you know, the the workers here organizing with the UAW. Um, and, and so that has been actually incredibly beneficial for 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 me as you know as i'm as i'm going on the radio trying to make the case for this uh because obviously we know that it doesn't have to be that way but it has been that way for decades and so the fact that they were actually able to materially reverse this for the first time like you said that idlin said in at least decades is huge and is huge for and, and I think will be huge for their campaign to organize the non-union sector. Yeah, I think so. I mean, what a talking point, you know, when you're speaking with skeptical workers or workers who may not be familiar with unions, what an anecdote to be able to share. You know, I do want to say that um, when I got to Belvedere to report the story, um, the tone I was met with from workers which was one of, excitement and optimism but tempered with mm. caution and sometimes outright uneasiness um mm. there was a strong awareness that there's a difference between winning something on paper in a contract and actually making it happen and i did hear complaints from some workers in belvedere who said that the company has not been as forthright as they would have liked in terms of transparency around when all the workers are going to come back, what exactly is the timetable, when exactly can we expect X number of jobs. Um, at the time, around 165 workers had been um, called back to sort of do parts distribution work. Mm. Um, the local president, Matt Franson, said that number was 180. The company said it was 165. Um, but the you know one of the workers that I profiled um, still ha hadn't at the time been called back yet. I haven't checked in with him. There's a chance that by now he has. Um, but he was very eager to get back to work and just sort of you know I think people have reason to be hopeful and reason to be optimistic, but are also very very cautious. And I do want to point out um, that there are a few provisions that are cause for optimism. So one is that the new Solanus contract um, achieved through the stand-up strike, it does say that workers have the right to strike over plant closures and product and things like that, which means that if the company were to not follow through on its commitments laid out in the contract, um, that it could potentially have a strike on its hands and, and workers are allowed to strike the entire company over those things. Mm. So that's one thing that bodes well. Um, another thing that bodes well is that the company, at least right now, is on the hook to pay sub pay to um, a certain amount of workers equaling 74% of their former pay at 40 hours a week. Um, so, you know, it's a good sign that the company is still tethered to at least some of those workers. Um, you know, and then I just want to point out the, you know, the commitments laid out in the contract. It's, so it's not just a reversal of the idling of the Belvedere assembly plant. They've also committed 
to relocating an electric vehicle facility um, in Belvedere and then also a big parts distribution hub. Um, I will say that the parts distribution hub is going to consolidate potentially other nearby hubs. So it is possible that people in other communities may lose their positions or look at having to transfer. And that was one thing that workers pointed out as well. So this is all to say that, you know, this is not, this is not perfect, you know, what's ever mm -hmm. perfect. Right. Um, and also it's not really a done deal. You know, Matt Franson, the president of the local told me we are so excited, but we'll believe it when we start seeing the dirt being moved and the concrete being poured. Mm -hmm. And I think that really sums up the tone that I was met with when I went to Belvedere. The thing that in your article that that I that that gave me the most optimism was uh, Stellantis being on the hook for that subpay of seventy four percent of their wages. Um, do how is it that uh, what are the qualifications for that? So um, my understanding, let me just. I took a note on these numbers because I didn't want to be inaccurate. So, okay. So at the time I reported this, um, the local president told me that 815 members of the local are receiving sub pay um, and are expected to get placed into jobs eventually on top of what he said were 180 who are currently back to work in parts distribution. Um, however, the, um, that is less than the total number of people who were put out of work. So when the company, um, you know, idled in February 2023, this put 1,350 workers out of work. Um, but the actual number who have been put out of work since cuts first began are, is much, much greater. Mm. Um, and a lot of those workers have transferred, have moved on. So subpay isn't necessarily going to every single worker impacted, but it is a big chunk of the local. Right, right. And so it, the, it is being, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, so so is, the, is the criteria something like, you know, you, you haven't transferred, and, and that makes sense that you're not gonna you're not gonna give subpay to somebody who's working for your company in another location. You know, that I mean they have their their full pay. That, you know, that 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 makes some amount of sense. Or maybe they have they have have permanently moved on and they don't have intentions of of returning um but if if people are still in Belvedere they haven't gotten another permanent occupation uh then they get subpay is it something like that I think it's something like that but I I don't want to be inaccurate and I don't um the the exact criteria are complex so um right. I I don't know exactly like well, what, what the having, full parameters are yeah, well, I mean, having 830 people, you know, almost a thousand people that you're paying to do nothing, right? I mean, that's a pretty big incentive to try to 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 move some dirt and and get them doing something, right? I mean, you're paying them anyway. You may as well have them have them producing for you. I mean, that that's you know, is there any precedent for that? Um. So okay. So I do want to say. Um, so JC Bankson, the one of the workers that I profiled, he really wanted to underscore that workers are not living high on the hog, that mm -hmm. the 74% is sort of needed for just basic retention, for covering groceries. 
He right. really underscored that for him, it's a pretty significant pay cut because he was working more than 40 hours a week. Right. So, and it's 74% of 40 hours. So he, he, I think, I think, um, wanted to push back against this idea that workers are just doing nothing. Um, but in ter- you know, subpay is definitely something, this is not the first time we've seen subpay in a contract. I think what's exciting about this case is that the subpay is coming from a company that has made a stated commitment in the contract to reverse the shuttering of a plant. Mm. And so that sort of act of tethering, keeping the company tethered to these workers, I think, is a cause for hope among some. And so, uh, you know, it's, I think it's entirely reasonable for especially workers in, you know, that are affected by this to be optimistic, but cautiously so, right? Because this is, this is the same company that would have, but for the UAW's contract campaign in 2023, left their community to rot, right? I mean, you know, so, so they have every reason in the world to be skeptical of this company. Um, what, what sort of preparations are they making to, uh, you know, to to try to make sure that they follow through? So my understanding is that right now a big part of it is monitoring and waiting and staying in touch with members and trying to get answers from the company and trying to sort of track who is going back and when and be in touch. Um, you know, this this is a local that is active. They're still having membership meetings. Um, they run a food pantry out of their local once a month in or they they distribute food to needy families once a month in con- in connection with the local food pantry. This is an active local. You know, my sense is that right now, what enforcing this means is sort of staying cohesive and alert. Um, there are probably conversations happening, you know, I I can't say I know 100% of the planning and organizing going into this, but I will say that, that there's a very healthy skepticism that gave me some reassurance that the local really, really wants to be on top of it. And, you know, this is right. a lifeblood of this town. Um, it's not like people aren't going to notice if Stellantis doesn't follow through. Right. Right. I think that's that's very important in ma- making sure that the local stays active, that the, the communication stays up to date and and that uh, they continue to monitor Stellantis to make sure that they that they do follow through. Um, and, and Stellantis has not announced a start date for preparations to begin uh, reopening, have they? I reached out to Atlantis for the article and asked them for a precise timetable. And all they said was, look, we're complying with the contract and didn't offer much more than that. Um, I do know, um, so like there have been some timetables laid out. So the contract says that Atlantis must reopen the Belvedere assembly plant to produce mid-sized trucks by 2027. Although the language does not actually specify how many jobs would be created. Mm. Um, and the the electric vehicle facility is a few years down the line. I think the parts distribution hub would be a little bit sooner. So we are looking at 
commitments that are a bit down the line. I mean, you know, we're not talking 10 years, we're talking a few years. Um, But nonetheless, I think it's going to take a lot of really sustained monitoring and organizing, honestly, to sort of make sure things are on track. The other thing that gave me a lot of hope that that we would be able to see this follow through is the fact that the UAW was able to secure a right to strike the whole company over investment decisions and outsourcing job placements, stuff like that. Um, was was that a discussion as you're talking to these folks about, you know, what are your thoughts about Stellantis's commitment here? Was there any explicit discussion of, of you know, um, we're prepared to strike? nationwide if they don't uh if they don't follow through with their commitment to this community as far as what i came across that's not the language that people were using right now in this moment but i do think there's an undercurrent of that threat um i mean there has to be the you know workers already showed themselves willing to walk out and participate in a stand-up strike strategy which was kind of a series of rolling strikes that caught employers by surprise. You know, they were surprise announcements. You didn't know where UAW was going to strike next. And we saw a lot of enthusiasm and excitement around that and a lot of participation. Um, But, you know, so I think the fact that there's been a strike so recently really Mm. makes it so that that contract language is not theoretical and, you know, comes with a real threat. Right. Uh, is there anything else that you think is important for folks to to uh, understand about this situation in Belvedere or, or maybe even, you know, broadening out the, the state of, of the UAW's relationship with with the big three and their campaign to organize the non-union sector uh, and, and how this plays into it? Well, there's actually one thing I wanted to um, highlight about the Belvedere situation, which is that the UAW has framed the commitment to create an electric vehicle plant as part of a just transition. Um, Mm -hmm. The idea of a just transition is that, you know, in light of the climate crisis, there is a need to transition away from fossil fuels. And a lot of people in labor um, and also in the climate movement have been pressing that, that if that's going to happen, we need to make sure that workers are taken care of, that no workers are left behind, that they are put in jobs that are dignified union jobs, and that it does not become a race to the bottom, which I think is a big concern among UAW. Um, when you look at the burgeoning, growing electric vehicle industry in the United States, there's a lot of concern about non-union jobs, about jobs with really poor conditions. Mm -hmm. And so in a highlighter that summarizes the wins in this Landis contract, um, UAW describes the Belvedere assembly plant as part of a just transition. I think it Mm -hmm. said something like Belvedere was flat on its back and now it's getting this new facility. And I know that, um, you know, Sean Fain, the president of UAW, the who won as a reform challenger, has used the language of a just transition. And this has been a real opening with climate activists. So there are groups like the Labor Network for Sustainability that really, really mobilize climate activists to, sh- to show up for the stand-up strike. And mm-hmm. 
they came to picket lines. They, you know, flyered a gathering of automakers in Detroit. Um, and so we're seeing, you know, some interesting opening of possible collaboration between uh, different sectors of the movement that I think are exciting and interesting. And I, you know, when you talk about um, UAW's push to organize the unorganized, you can't really talk about that without talking about the electric vehicle sector um, because it's, it's highly ununionized and um, there's just a lot of potential to for for workers to really be in the driver's seat of what a shift away from fossil fuels means for the people doing the labor. Right, right. I, I think that that's in, that that's v- very important because, um, you know, a, as we've been been hearing talk about a transition to electric vehicles, it it has uh, a. a uh, aroused a skepticism from a lot of folks about you know because they have seen the state of the transition so far right and and so there's, there's they've got every reason to be skeptical how are how is it being received that language of a just transition and the UAW taking a more active role in the transition to electric vehicles and and you know, being more vocal about uh, the need for this, but with the uh, very strong caveat that it needs to be good-paying union jobs, how how is that being received by uh, the membership? You know, I asked that question to um, Matt Franzen, the president of the local in Belvedere, and um, you know, he he basically said something like like Look, workers are not like necessarily giddy about the transition to electric vehicles, but they understand that having this plant in their town could really help their town. Mm. Um, and JC Bankston, the the um, worker who I interviewed, um, he was he was pretty open. And sorry, sorry, when I talk about the local, I'm talking about UAW twelve sixty eight. That's the local in Belvedere. Right. Um, but J.C. Bankston was like, like, yeah, it, you know, I, if this change is going to happen, let's just make sure that it's not a race to the bottom. Um, you know, I can't, you know, I think the broader question of how membership overall feels about electric vehicles is a complex one and would probably take some polling or data that I don't have. You know, I will say that there's been a false narrative put out there by auto companies, actually. Mm. um that that workers and unions are opposed to electric vehicles and it was actually put out aggressively during the strike people trying to make the argument that the strike is going to actually hurt the transition to electric vehicles even though if you listen to what sean fain's administration was saying that's not at all what they were saying they were they didn't say anything in opposition to electric vehicles. It was just right. purely this argument that we have to prevent a race to the bottom in terms of labor standards. Right. That's it. I was I was actually shocked how much I saw that, uh, especially in you know uh, some of the mainstream, maybe like MSNBC type places. Uh, it was. It's a perfect talking point to try to peel away a support among the sort of like Biden liberals, you know, like (laughs) people, people who are invested in climate mitigation and, you know, telling them like, oh, workers going on strike is going to threaten climate mitigation is the perfect talking point for, for automakers. Right. 
And and I really appreciate that you brought up that there has been some opening in terms of collaboration between environmental justice activists and labor activists and, and uniting around what a just transition looks like and how that includes good union jobs. Uh, and I think the more we collaborate, the more we can dispel that kind of narrative. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there were plenty of um, climate activists who were like, all right, this is our moment. If we want to build trust and solidarity with unions and let them know that we're for real and that we really are going to fight for the livelihoods and well-being of workers. Now is our chance. There, there were people who took it really seriously. There were pretty broad coalitions of climate groups who, who demonstrated solidarity, including going on to picket lines. Right. Right. All right. Uh, Sarah Lazare, uh, editor of Workday Magazine. Really appreciate your time. Check out, uh, check out our work in Workday Magazine and in these times. Uh, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Oh, and sorry, could I just say yeah. I want to um, give credit where it's due. So this our, this Belvedere article, it was a collaboration. It was co-published with Workday Magazine in these times and Labor Notes. So I just want to give shout outs to all those other publications too. Absolutely. I'll uh, completely endorse that. Uh, Labor Notes in these times, Workday Magazine. Uh, check them all out. Subscribe to, to all of them uh, if you haven't yet. Um, it's very good, uh, all very good stuff. So uh, make make sure that you're following all of their work. So thanks for that. Yeah, thank you. All right. Um, Tom from the Trillbilly Workers Party is going to be joining us here in uh, five to ten minutes. Um, he's not on the Zoom right now, right? No, no okay. not yet. I didn't think he was. Um, so 844-899-TBLR is the phone number, 844-899-8857. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, this, this reopening of the Belvedere plant is really, really important. Um, and, and has been, you know, something that, that I have leaned on a lot as I'm trying to do, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, media work in, uh, in Alabama, trying to dispel some of this stuff that, oh, you know, if, if workers are paid well, if workers have any modicum of control over the place where they spend the majority of their waking lives, uh, then the companies will necessarily have to move. Like they, they have to. That's just the that's just the law of economics. Um, and and even without that anecdote, obviously we know that it's not. We know that it doesn't have to be that way. But having that anecdote there from so recent has been extremely beneficial for me because you know i mean what do you say to that there's you know like you're you're saying this hypothetically it means that that jobs will go away well i'm saying that uh literally materially the union was able to create jobs actually it wasn't a job killer it was literally a job creator that's right so yeah it's been very uh very beneficial and I think it's very good and I think it bodes well for the health of the UAW, the health of the labor movement um, and the success of this campaign to organize the non-union sector, particularly in the South, where that argument does have maybe even more weight than it would elsewhere because uh, I, I do think that people are aware of you know the fact that uh, companies did move here to um, you know, to get away from unions, right? This was a, a very big, uh, it was a big reason uh, that they came from the North and the Midwest 
uh, is is to try to get away from unions, try to pay people less, try to have more control over their employees. And so if you're a worker in that situation, you're like, well, um, you know, if, if I do the same thing that other people have before, then then these jobs will leave. And, and it, it doesn't have to be that way. And, and in fact, the UAW is leading the way in, in making sure that, that it's not that way in the future. Right. Absolutely. Um, and I do think we have Tom on the line. Fantastic. All right. Uh, Tom Sexton is a co-host of the Trillbilly Workers Party podcast. You can find them at the Trillbillies. They have, um, I don't know, hun- hundreds of thousands of people listening to them uh, as a podcast, which is very. I, I I'm interested in the, you know. Tom's uh, um, take on the podcast industry generally because it, it's, it does seem like podcasts as a genre are pretty kind of secluded from the rest of the of, of like a, the media narrative and the discourse or whatever. But, you know, I mean, huge amounts of people listen to podcasts and and the Trillbillies specifically. Um, and it, it's interesting that that their place in the discourse is, is maybe not reflective of, of, of that. So uh, anyway, Tom Sexton, Trillbilly Workers Party, thank you for taking the time to join us to celebrate our uh, Kentucky debut on 88.7 FM WMMT in Whitesburg. Hey, y'all, y'all picked uh, the hip hop giant in the mountains. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, What's going on, fellas? Been a minute. It has been a minute. It has. Uh, appreciate you taking the time to uh, to talk to us. Um, so, w- what is that like being, you know, on a podcast where, you know, I mean, like hundreds of thousands of folks listen to y'all, and I don't think that y'all really get kind of the the uh you know attention or or relevance in in a lot of the in a lot of the discourse that you know people of similar that get similar numbers in, in like you know some of the mainstream media that they get what i mean what do you think the reason for that is that's probably best that way honestly <laughs> uh, now I, I don't know i mean it's not something that i I've really thought about to be perfectly honest with you with <laughs> to your question on the whole podcast industry writ large. It's like, um, I live in fear of it going the way of the blog and, you know, having to get honest work again. Uh, you know, because, uh, I'm not filled with work. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, um, you're not excited to go sell your labor. Yeah. Excited. Yeah. To get back out there and yeah, and actually do well. I mean, I, I say that like I don't have a day job, but, uh, you know, it's a uh, podcast thing has been a, a nice supplement to that. And you don't have to worry so much, but I think when you've been in positions like we've all been in, like you're always that nagging feeling of like, well, uh, any day now, pal, the hammer's going to drop on you. So, right. uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. It seems like it's one of those things. It's almost like reflective of the bourbon industry where you, you wait for the bubble to, to, to pop a little bit and then it just never does, you know, and it mm. just keeps getting right. more and yeah, more. The, uh, yeah, we're, we're big, uh, bourbon fans here. Uh, so that's a, a good, we do uh, bourbon and podcast on the VLR. There you go. There you go. Um, so, you know, speaking of, of selling, uh, your labor to, uh, uh, to capitalists, um, 
you know, there's this 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 video going around of this really really young kid working at Burger King. This was a this was a couple of weeks back, and um the the right wing and and you know the there's been this this push to make it easier for capitalists to you know have children work for them uh across the country particularly in the south um and and so well, there was there was like uh 13 year olds working at like Nissan or something down y'all's way <laughs> yes yeah well it was for Hyundai actually it was uh, there was a uh, people <laughs> as young as 13 dozens of children uh working at at a Hyundai plant here in Alabama um and and in in fact uh just last week, it was uh, it was revealed that back in in what was it August, Adam, a 15 year old uh, died on his first day on the job at a roofing company. And Alabama's politicians see that and they're like, well, the only problem is that's illegal right now. We need to make that legal so we can have more of that. Yeah, that's yeah, they, they look at that as like a. A character building thing for everybody that remains that's you know 14 years old and trying to uh you know uh make i mean i'm sure we've all did that i mean hell i was hanging drywall when i was or you know <laughs> not much older than that i guess you know right. so well that was actually one of uh down in florida you know they have one of these bills and that was one of the um that was one of the arguments of the author of the bill they were like I broke child labor laws when I was uh, 12 and 13 and, and I've got a company where children have worked for me. And, you know, so people who uh, are going to break the law are going to do this anyway. So we may as well legalize it. Right. Might, yeah, might as well get some uh, get some mileage out of this uh, yeah, child suffering. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, just 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 unleash it. Right. Let, you know, unleash capitalism and, and we'll have a whole lot of, uh, you know, Everybody will benefit if, if this arrangement is, is more legal than it is today. Um, well, I would caution everybody and say this. I, I, my character did not benefit one single smidge from uh, hanging drywall at 14 and roofing at, you know, 15 and everything else. I right. <laughs> so, well, and, just and put that's, that to bed. Yeah, well, and that's I thought actually, maybe that but, was the reason behind the success, right? You were just busting <laughs> your ass as a middle schooler and it's all come off, you know, it's all paid off now. Yeah, you, you didn't you didn't learn your uh, your work ethic from from that, and and it wasn't like just a just a incredibly formative time in your life. <laughs> I tell you, the one thing I did get out of it is the the camaraderie. I mean, you guys talk about this, we talk about yeah. this, but like, there's a few things like that sort of job site camaraderie, and I think it puts you ahead of the curve socially. I think it puts you ahead of the curve in terms of you know how to interact with people and and interface with the world every day but that's that's the real benefit there's no like sort of hard lessons to be learned by breaking your body down you know right. and, well and a lot of the things that they say that you can learn on the job is like things that you can also learn in school you know one, one of the things uh <laughs> that they said in, in some of these uh conservative podcasts was uh um you know you you learn how to punch a clock and it's like you get to school at the same time every day. Like <laughs> you have to, you have to catch the bus at the same time. Like, what do you mean? You learn how to punch a clock. Like, what are you talking about? You do that at school. Giving the whole game away in a way, right? It's like what they really want to do is just make sure that they max extract everything they can out of us so that somebody else can, right. you know, make a well, fortune while we make a pittance. And 
Yeah. And and so Let's wash repeat. Matt Walsh is one of the people who inserted himself into this conversation. Uh you're a uh aren't you a big fan of Matt Walsh? Yeah, he's he's good at inserting himself in conversations. That's <laughs> about it <laughs> so he said i had my first job when i was 14 i was able to do something productive earn a bit of money and learn some basic skills i cannot understand why people are opposed to this it's not like we're sending kids down into the mines what is the problem exactly and that's actually yet yet yeah <laughs> he's clearly not following politics closely enough because an indiana republican literally introduced a law to legally send 14-year-olds into the mines. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Like, it's actually, you know, it's, he, 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 and it's funny because that's the most, you know, around any conversation about workplace protections, unions, child labor, the quintessential bad workplace is the mines. Right. Oh, unions. You you don't need a union here in this auto manufacturing facility. We're not a coal mine. Uh, you know, you don't. Uh, 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 <laughs> children can work here in this, uh, you know, this service industry. Uh, it's not a coal mine. Right. It's uh, it's literally the epitome of bad working conditions. This is the place where you need to be most protected and you need a union and you need labor laws and all this. And he went to it because of that. Because this was the most extreme thing that he could think of. He can't think of anything more extreme than sending 14-year-olds into the coal mines. And Republicans are trying to do that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is only three feet away from sending them to war. (laughs) (laughs) The ultimate character building. Right, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, this way till, uh, if not 2024, maybe about 2028. Will reduce the draft age to yeah. fourteen for yeah more of that character building. I think I think that's where you're wrong, Jacob, because like you said, the coal mine is the most extreme. That means the most extreme character right. building. You're gonna get the most character from the. The coal more mine. underground you go, the more your character grows. Like who among you striving to be the most pious? We're gonna send you underground. It's. <laughs> it's <laughs> you you said that you know uh, maybe maybe we should just just continue this uh, to to you know uh, it, it, the next logical step and 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 you know have have children being drafted at at earlier ages you know Terrence was talking about uh, the character benefit uh, that his veteran friends have received from their service uh, just on, on was it on the last episode or maybe the one before that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was all extremely beneficial, like zero downsides for them. Yeah, 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 yeah. It shook out perfectly well for all of them, you know. So <laughs> There's, I think, one that he roomed with uh, and said that uh, he would find him up at all hours of the night, like hallucinating or, or I don't know. It was, yeah, obviously not good. It was not a good thing. So, uh, you know. There are Republicans that want to send people into the coal mines. Uh, but but the other part of this is that, you know, what's what's the big deal with people working at at, you know, Good Burger when they're, you know, teenagers? And it's like, well, they can't. They can in every state in the country. Actually, uh, teenagers are allowed to work in restaurants uh, and service industry and, and Trader Joe's. It's just that uh, they can't do it for more than like four hours on a school day. And eight hours on the weekend or during the summer. And that's like 
really basically it. You can't work them too late. You can't work them too much and you can't work them too many days in a row. And so actually, you know, there's not a problem <laughs> as far as as far as as far as that goes. It's all legal. And the problem is that they're trying to make it more easy for capitalists to 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 do this. And, and one of the things the thing that's happening in Alabama is actually we have a requirement for 14 and 15 year olds that a school sign off their school sign off or the educational institution, if they're homeschooled, you know, their parents, but if they're in the public education system, the school has to say this 14 year old, you know, is doing academically well enough that they can go, go work. And, and the bill in Alabama is to get rid of that requirement. Schools can't say no to their children working. And so it's explicitly to allow, you know, 14 year olds who are failing school to go and work. It's just, did y'all have that? Like I would always hear from time to time growing up, for example, like, uh, like um so and so like dropped out of school at 14 to go work on the farm or something like mm. that like i would hear stories and i never really knew what that meant except that like this kid i'd went to school with my whole life i just never saw him again right <laughs> no, or not in that context anyway you know right like uh yeah that's kind of a weird thing that goes on it's like oh yeah in some places uh, it's kind of the same thing like how some kids can get like a farm driver's license when they're like 13 or 14 or something like that Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Some states. I'm sure it's not everywhere. Yeah. And it's I mean, it's just wild that they see that and like we need more of that. Just more of that. You know, uh, no need to go to school. Just just go straight to the workforce. Just go straight to the workforce. I'm sure it has nothing to do with the tight labor market that we have right now yeah. uh, and the, the uh, workers that are organizing everywhere. I'm sure it's just a pure coincidence. They want to insert more children there. Yeah. Yeah. And so this this video was going around and it and it got this um it, it got the uh uh the discourse going and and the the conservatives were very dismayed by people being, you know, kind of perturbed by uh an extremely young kid working at at Burger King um you know like I, he looked like the kid looked like I mean maybe even 11 or 12 surely he was at, at least 13 or 14 but you know it was a very young looking kid and and so that's just kind of off-putting you know, as, as an American, you know, I, I go to Burger King. It's like, I want to be, you know, uh, I want to see people that look like they can drive. Uh, <laughs> so uh, and, and so they were very unhappy with the reaction to this video. Um, and and Brett Cooper is one of the people at, at the Daily Wire. Uh, she was she was one of them. Very, it was like, oh, this is crazy. You know, I can't believe the reaction. This is uh, all I see is is a kid having fun uh you know you we blurred his face because he's under 18 but i promise you under that he's smiling and he's incredibly all i see is a kid having it his way (laughs) exactly but there there was some positive news that that she shared during this this segment that she had about about child labor uh so let's let's play this and and terrence i'm interested in, in your thoughts on on her her positive news But guys, it's not all doom and gloom. We actually do have a positive update because in 2023, the number of teens working reached a 14 year high. It had the biggest increase literally since the 90s. So there you go. 14 year high in children working. Uh, Good news. Uh, I I, I wouldn't I wouldn't term that a positive trend. Uh, (laughs) But (laughs) yeah. Um, <clears throat> we're trying to go back to the Gilded Age, right? Yeah. We've got the Gilded Age inequality. We've got the robber barons like Elon Musk. Like we need Musk to start wearing a top hat 
and like a monocle, yeah. you know, the, the old school capitalist robber barons and just really dress the part. Um, put the kids back in the coal mines and it'll be 1880s all over again. That's exactly right. You know, yeah. something I'm I'm doing right now, I'm trying to I'm taking singing lessons. I'm, uh, you know, uh-huh. trying to uh, start playing the piano again and, and different things like that. I grew up in church doing that. I wish like now as an older man that like I would have really dialed in when my brain was spongy, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because like things are way harder now. And it's like we should be giving kids the freedom to to be spongy and learn things and languages and, and, and skills, you know, both creative and non-creative and all these things. And instead, like, uh, you know, we're, uh, paying them peanuts to like make a fortune for like the local oligarch that owns the Burger King franchise. It's just really, I don't know. It's disheartening, you know? And I'm, and again, I'm not besmirching hard work or anything like that at all, but, um, it's just that uh, it's just a little sad, and it's all, always kids that that uh, you know, kids that live in certain neighborhoods don't have to go work it. Right. Oh, yeah. I was going to say that. Yeah, my wife teaches at a very rural school, and it's no surprise it's the poor kids that are tired every day because they were working so much. Right. It's not the affluent kids. Not that there's many of at that school, but. Yeah, the the well-off middle-class kids typically aren't the ones who are working late at night, you know, as teenagers. It's the kids who have to, right? They're mm-hmm. they're paying part of the light bill for mama, uh, you know, if there's a mama at home, right? And so, uh, yeah, it's definitely uh, a a distinction between who is actually impacted here. Um, but you said something uh about about uh learning to sing and, and getting back into that kind of stuff. And I think that's pretty cool and interesting. And uh, you mentioned language and that, that, re, you know, definitely reminds me, like they always say the easiest time to learn a language is when you're really young. Uh, and so, yeah, like the, the sponginess aspect of their brains, like what are they picking up when they could be picking up so many different things? It's, you know, how to cook French fries. Right. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's just not the kind of, uh, intellectual development one might would want for our nation's young people. Uh, you know, but Hey, it's no big deal. It's just the future. Well, and, and Brett actually responded to, to that almost exactly, uh, in, in response to Florida's attempt to loosen child labor laws. And, and so, uh, she explains actually what Florida's, uh, bill would do and, uh, and, and and then goes on to say, you know, this is this is uh, uh, th- this is fine, and you're going to have plenty of time to do all of that other, you know, uh, frilly stuff. Uh, so let let's l- listen to her explain what's going on in Florida. Unfortunately, I don't know if Tom's going to be able to hear the clip. Uh, did you hear the first clip, Tom? Did it no, actually improvise that? I have to say. <laughs> No, oh, no. Uh, yeah, I, I thought I thought there might be something off there. Um, uh, so tell me, Jacob, if you want to go forward with it, it's up to you, brother. But, uh, uh, you know, well, I guess not. I, I see something about fighting alligators. So, yeah, uh, well, uh, so now that well, does intrigue me. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what this conservative lady's talking about, but. <laughs> well, yeah, so what she says is she explains the law, which would allow Currently, the law in Florida is that you cannot work children too many days in a row. And so one of the things that the law does is it allows you to work children six days in a row. And you also can't work children more than four and a half hours in a, in a school day. 
And uh, so this. I guess I was thinking that same thing. <laughs> he only worked four and a half hours a day creating the heavens and the earth. Well, no, that's what it was before. That's what it was before. So now they want to extend the day to eight hours. Ah, so you can work a kid six days a week, eight hours a day during the school year. And so they go like, to school for seven, eight hours a day and then go work a full time job, yes. essentially. 48 hours a week and she says after explaining this it's not like they're sending them to go fight alligators in the swamp that's the that's what you would think they're making them do and it's obviously not what they're making them do brett cooper says uh, incredulously god dude. so yeah that's it's so bad I, you know <laughs> it's pretty bad a 48 hour work week would be a lot harder if you were fighting alligators it but it kind of sucks no matter what job you yeah. have like 48 hours it's not I cool. Uh, yeah, I'm almost 30 and I don't want to work a 48 hour work week. That's that sucks. I've done it before and I hate it. It sucks. I wouldn't want to do that while I'm going to school full time. I like how, how how much these people don't have their finger on the pulse. Like the rest of the world and much of our country is like trying to dial in the work week a little bit. Like a lot of it is we know like even even yeah. even rabid capitalists know a lot of it is just like wasted productivity from their perspective. Right. You know, and, and, and Florida's like, uh, nah, nah, let's actually let's ramp it up a little bit. That's the way to fly. Yeah. Um, and they uh, uh, another thing that she says is is that um, one of the reasons that we should allow children to work more is that um, children are too illiterate today. And uh, the public education system is failing them because they're not literate enough. And therefore, maybe they'll learn to read better at work. Uh, so have we tried anything like that before? <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, this this is an idea. It's a, you know, there, there's like a, a empirical, you know, we can we could theoretically test this. You know, how, how do you get? How how do you get more literacy by by education or or by working? Adam, have we got any data on that? Adam, the history teacher. Yeah, that's a good question, man. Um, you know, I think that we did do that at one time, and mm. turns out it didn't help. Really? Uh, turns out best way to you know become more literate is to actually study literacy and read and Interesting. write and yeah. Um, yeah, it turns out you don't learn a lot of that at mm. the coal mine or at the Burger King. Mm. Um, I don't remember any like grammar lessons at uh, Wendy's. I worked at Wendy's and Sonic, uh, at the movie theater, all that kind of stuff as a teenager. I don't remember learning much uh, about literacy. I can't say that I did, at least. What about you, Tom? Did you learn literacy uh, hanging drywall? Yeah, I was reading uh, R.L. Stein on my little 15 minute breaks that i get you know uh no nah, yeah that's i mean it's just ridiculous on its face and it? yeah it's just <laughs> yeah uh so i've got i've got a couple other stories that i wanted i wanted your thoughts on um you know we're talking about children <clears throat> and alabama's supreme court has recently uh um declared that embryos in ivf clinics are people as it relates to Alabama state law. Um, and so, therefore, a wrongful death lawsuit it can move forward against an IVF clinic. 
because they spilled uh, some of the frozen embryos. Um, I'll, I'll I'll keep my initial reaction uh, WMMT friendly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not live on WMMT, so we will be able to uh, we'll be able to censor it if necessary. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, that's good. I've been sitting here wondering, like, oh, did I let something fly just re- reflexively? <laughs> no, no, we are not live. We are. Uh, this is this is going to be sent to them to play later in the week, so we'll be able to we'll be able to clean up. okay yeah this is just i mean like what's a life what's not a life is just such a race to the bottom always like you know it's like it's like it's like half the time i don't like nobody's engaging in that in in the culture wars in good faith so it's like not even worth like talking about in some ways but it is just ridiculous that like there's some new gamete or you know organism that we technically are or are or is a part of us before we're actually fully formed that oh no that constitutes life now well the the thing that i found most interesting about it is that it it just seems like they're uh you know pulling the trigger on this way too quick because i mean it hasn't been but just a month or two ago that I heard from Republicans talking about Roe and abortion and all of this, that that because that's actually been something that people respond to in the context of the abortion conversation, like, oh, you know, uh, if you take this to its logical conclusion, they're going to outlaw IVF and they're going to say that the frozen embryos are people and, and, you know, therefore we're, you know, trampling on their human rights or whatever uh the human rights of these frozen embryos and eggs and stuff uh and and republicans would turn around and say that's crazy we just want to you know that's we would never do that and it just seems like it's a little early for the alabama supreme court to be like pulling this trigger yeah it seems yeah it seems even 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 for y'all standards seems a little (laughs) (laughs) a little (laughs) heavy-handed yeah yeah I I agree. Um, yeah, they won't let you kill an embryo. Just just grown ups, right. just grown ups. That's yeah. Yeah. Well, our maybe or, fourteen and fifteen year olds on the job. But only right? if you're a boss. Only if you're a boss. Yeah. Right. 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 You can't. Yeah, you that's can't right. do it if you're that's anybody right. else. But if you're a boss, you can get away with it. You know. I mean, the the employer uh, that was responsible for the death of that fifteen year old. All he got was fines. Right. And this was a person who had been fined for safety issues. In 2017, 2019, and 2021, right? So this is not a person that is new to OSHA. And still, even after all of that, all those previous fines, all he got for being responsible for the death of this kid was another fine. I mean, it's just, it's bizarre. It's beyond parody, man. It's like, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, if... uh... I don't see how that's meaningfully different than like driving drunk and killing somebody like that wasn't obviously your intent, but right. Right. You created the conditions for something like that to happen. So, you know, what's the, you know, no, I think that's a really good parallel punitive or get into that, but I'm just saying like, you know, I mean, if we've got the prisons already, I mean, you know, just empty them and replace them with bosses is what you're saying, I guess. (laughs) Just a a jail full of bosses. Um, Yeah. I mean, I could get down for that. And so the last, uh, the last story, uh, very, very relevant 
um, to to the conversation, if not a, as timely, uh, because you know y'all mentioned that the subtext of this is that the these these people who are pushing these child labor bills, um, it's not actually their children that are going to be affected by this. It's not their it, you know the child of the state senator introducing this bill in Florida is not going to be working forty eight hours a week while they're in school. Obviously, they're going to be going to some whatever private religious school uh, and then, you know, doing whatever extracurriculars they want to outside of school. Interning um, with interning, some freak. Yeah, yeah. yeah, with some ghoul, uh, vampire, lizard person, and uh, getting uh, Harvard paid for by the donations that their parents make. You know, I mean, uh, so the people that are going to be affected by this are like some white folks in trailer parks and immigrants, right? And 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 by and large, undocumented immigrants. And there's this clip that's been going around of, of Milton Friedman talking about just just saying the subtext out loud. He says in the clip uh, something like, um, "Illegal immigration is great for the immigrants and for the business owner and for the economy, but only." So far as it's illegal, that's and he talks like that. So far as it's uh, the the weird mid Atlantic a- accent, whatever it is, uh, and and he says that literally a quote. It's only good so far as it's illegal. If it's legal, it's no good. And he says because these people, um, you know, they don't have uh, uh, they don't have access to uh, the benefits that the taxes that they pay pay for. Uh, they don't have uh, the right to vote or anything like that. And so all of this, it's a it's a good it's a good arrangement for everybody. They have a better job than they would have in their home country. Uh, the boss gets cheap labor. The consumer gets cheap good cheap goods. And uh, the welfare state is not you know dependent on these uh, these people and. We're not politically accountable to them, and so you know it's it's all it's all great, but only as long as it's illegal. <laughs> Something I can appreciate about that mentality in a different context, <laughs> but in this one, yeah, I'm so right, right, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's that is what they're asking for is this permanent underclass of folks that can be hyper exploited. Right. And, uh, you know, because if you're, if you are here illegally, are you going to unionize, right? right? Are you going to speak up when the boss steals your wages or sexually harasses you or does any of the other crazy things that happen to people at work, you know? So it's, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of just laying it out there, I guess, a little more honest than some folks. Yeah. Well, uh, well, Tom, uh, before we let you go, I wanted to just get some uh, get some insight on labor organizing in Kentucky. Is there anything anything cool happening in Kentucky that we need to know about? Oh, I mean, labor organizing or, you know, politically, we've been talking right. about any, uh, any, you know, the, just the, what's going on up there. Yeah, we, what's... we know about Alabama. Right. But I know a little bit about Mississippi, but not much about Kentucky, honestly. Uh I've just driven through there to go to Chicago for labor notes. <laughs> that's that's my Kentucky experience. Well, you got you got to stop in next time. Well, I mean, the one thing I would uh, you know uh, mention just personally is uh, you know um, several years ago, uh, Terrence and I were involved in in this fight to stop this federal prison that's that's been proposed to be built in uh, Letcher County where we're from, 
and uh, that has since uh, we were successful the first time, but it's since come back up uh, under the Biden administration. Who'd have thunk it? Imagine that. And um, so uh, the last thing I heard about this, and for those that aren't familiar, uh, one of only at, at the time it was the only federal prison scheduled to be built in their pipeline. Now I think there's a second one that may be slated to be built in Kansas. I think. Um, but, um, but yeah, um, so Hal Rogers, who is our congressman in Kentucky's, uh, fifth congressional district has, uh, you know, is on his way out. And so like even a lot of well-meaning Democrats, when we've said like, you know, what are you going to do to try to challenge this? They're like, well, you know, Hal's. How's old? He's been around. We're going to give him his prison. It's like it's almost like, you know, when you'd work for like, uh, you know, the factory and they give you like a gold Elgin watch on your last day or something like mm-hmm. that. Instead, he gets to build, you know, federal prison that's going to be, you know, this, uh, you know, half a billion dollar monument to human suffering mm-hmm. and in a stone's throw away from one of the only old growth forests left in uh, in this country. So it's just a whole Whole, whole bad deal from 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 start to finish. So, um, but there's a a good group of folks, you know, from all different you know ages and backgrounds and everything that that are are working on that. So I just want to uh, to name that, and uh, you know, if if you're looking to um, you know wondering what you can do about that, yeah, just uh, DM me or 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 the Trill Bailey's account or whatever, wherever we're at, and uh, yeah, plug in. All right. Tom Sexton, Trailblazer Workers Party. Uh, how'd you come out with a name? Uh, it's kind of dumb. <laughs> <laughs> nah. <laughs> Couldn't have been. It was kind of a nod to, you know, Southern rap and UGK and all these people we grew up listening to. Are you a 3-6 Mafia fan? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Project Pat? Oh, yeah. Becoming friends with the late great gangsta boo before she passed, uh, which was wow. Uh, that's that's great pretty thrills cool. of my life. Hell yeah, that yeah, that's really cool. Uh, definitely listened to a lot of the uh, underground Memphis rap as a teenager. Uh, can't listen to Project Pat without thinking of Wild Times and younger days. And yeah, that's that's really cool to to have gotten to know Gangsta Boo and, and get to know her. That's put that on your resume. Yeah. <laughs> all right tom sexton yeah, i appreciate you fellas yeah we'll have to get together on our show again sometime been too long yeah Absolutely. man anytime anytime and uh we'll hit you up if we're ever in kentucky yeah yeah sounds good y'all be good all appreciate right. you there we go folks kentucky debut of the valley labor report i guess now we're um you know, the Valley is is a generic enough kind of name uh, that, you know, it's not going to be out of place in a lot in, in a lot of places. But but in Kentucky, we're on the mountain, actually. That's we're true. The opposite of the Valley. We're. The mountain. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I've put out feelers for West Virginia. Um We are looking to expand to other radio stations. So if anyone's listening and you've got connections to a radio station or uh you know know anyone who works at a radio station anything like that public radio college radio uh commercial talk radio whatever the situation may be um 
yeah, we'd love to expand and get in some other areas. We'd love to grow across Alabama, uh, but also across the South. Um, I mean, I guess I'm not opposed to, to going outside the South, honestly. Yeah. If, hey, if some Yankee brother or sister out there really wants to put us on the air somewhere, and we're good. down to do that. Uh, I don't know, uh, you know, if they would dig it, but if you do, happy to work with you. So, yeah, get us on the air wherever yeah. you can. Uh, really would appreciate that and happy to be on the air in Kentucky. Um, lots of great labor history in Kentucky. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as we're rounding out, I wanted to share with people uh, just a couple of stats from the um, the uh, University of Illinois Urbana Campaign, Urbana Champaign School of Labor and Employment Relations. The ILR school. <clears throat> really, I thought that was at Cornell. Am I wrong about? I guess oh, I'm wrong oh, about oh, that. Oh, it's uh, it's two. It, it's this report was done in in cooperation with Cornell's ILR and gotcha. Illinois School of Labor. Thank you for that. Gotcha, gotcha. I was not super clear on that. Okay, yeah. So it, it's Cornell's ILR. What does ILR stand for? Cornell International in Labor Relations. I think it's industrial, industrial labor relations. Labor. Uh, yeah, and I know they've got this great tracker, the ILR tracker, where you can go you know, any any time of the year and, and see what's happening in terms of strike activity. Uh, it's a really cool tool. Yes. So uh, they created their report for labor uh, work stoppages in 2023. And a uh, couple of cool numbers that I wanted to share. The number of work stoppages involving demands for a first contract more than doubled from 36 to 20 in 2022 to 74 in 2023. In 2023, approximately 539,000 workers were involved in 470 work stoppages, 466 strikes, and four lockouts, totaling 24,870,000-some-odd strike days. The number of work stoppages each month stayed relatively consistent before increasing considerably between August and November. That's the UAW, probably. The number of workers on strike each month spiked between July and November, the UAW, uh, and also, I guess, the uh, the actors. In comparison to 2022, there were 37 more work stoppages with about 315,000 more workers on the picket line. Almost four-fifths of work stoppages this year involved unionized workers, 78, uh, 78%, while just over a fifth of all work stoppages were led by non-union workers, 22%. Unionized workers comprised the largest portion of workers involved in work stoppages and strike days, accounting for 97% of uh, the number of workers involved in work stoppages and 99.7% of strike days, respectively. So um, that number is really important because while it is true that you have a lot of these same rights if you're not unionized, um, being in a union makes it a lot easier to execute that. You do have a little bit more protections and you're part of, you know, uh, generally, you're going to be part of a larger labor union that has more resources that can support you. So it makes a lot of sense that uh, the vast majority of workers who went on strike uh, were a union. And in fact, 97% of the workers who went on strike were in unions. So, um, yeah, I think that is a, an important distinction. And like it's worth pulling out, in my opinion, that um, if you're going to do a strike, a, a collective action like that, you should have some collective organization. Uh, whether you've been recognized officially as a union or not may be a different story, but 
um, you need some sort of collective organizing to be able to pull off a strike, right? Uh, certainly in a successful way. Um, right. That's not to say that spontaneous things don't happen, but uh, yeah, to your point, yes, legally you could go on strike as a non-union worker and you have that right and, you know, exercise it by all means if you can, but, um, you know, it's typically probably going to be more effective if you have organized yourself into a union um, like you said, if you're affiliated with a, a larger union, you can have resources and backup, and uh, that is very effective and, and helpful in terms of winning a strike or any sort of real, you know, collective action taking place. Um, so it's, yeah, and it's interesting to see, you know, we've had a growth in independent unions and new unions lately. Um, there are different types of organizing, union organizing that's happening. Uh for example, the United Campus Workers, I want to shout, out, shout them out. I know they've been doing work across college campuses in the South, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, other places. Um, and so, yeah, unions can look different depending on where you're at. They can be organized differently. Uh, but, yeah, to be able to pull off collective action, you do need some sort of collective organizing structures, ideally, um, you know, for it to be sustainable. Uh, but really appreciate Cornell putting out this report. Uh, and yeah, it's interesting to see the the rise. I think, like you said, the actors uh, strike, the UAW strike, certainly um, bumped those numbers up quite a bit. Uh, but, you know, we are in what, year two, year three of like talking about Striketober and strike summers and that kind of thing. Um, mm. You know, so... It does seem like, you know, a couple, uh, two to three years of sustained, you know, activity is a trend, I think. Right. Um, now, whether it will last, I think is a good question. Uh, there are some really, you know, I think big threats facing the labor movement. Um, the Supreme Court case that we referenced earlier by Amazon, Trader Joe's and SpaceX that is really, really dangerous mm. to the labor movement. Right. Um, I'm, you know, not to get too off topic here, but that, that really has been on my mind a lot lately uh, because we all know the makeup of the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. It is, you know, a far-right body of judges, uh, or at least the overwhelming majority, uh, <laughs> and they have been extremely aligned with business. Uh, if you look at the justices on that Supreme Court. So what this lawsuit is trying to do is more or less rule the current labor law regime as unconstitutional and to gut the NLRB. Um, and, you know, that really threatens to reverse us back into a, what, pre-1934, 35 situation in terms of labor rights and labor law. Um you know, and we all have to be thinking as a movement, what are we going to do if that happens? Right. What are we going to do if the Supreme Court comes out and uh, tosses the NLRB and our rights to organize, our rights to strike, our rights to collective bargaining, our rights to union recognition? If all of that is shredded by the Supreme Court, um, what do we do next? You know, it's not that it's over. By any means, right? Because workers have organized 
workers were organizing well before before the NLRA, and workers will always organize as long as there are workers. I mean, workers organized building the Pharaoh's pyramids, right? There, that was our first recorded strike that we know about. So workers are always going to organize, no matter how difficult the situation, no matter what the laws say. Uh, but the laws obviously make a big difference. We know how broken labor law is already in this country. Uh, you know, particularly since Taft-Hartley was was passed in 47 uh, and in just the declines over time since then. But this really threatens to put us even further back. Uh, and that's a big concern that I have. And I think, I, I hope that the leaders of our labor movement, as well as our rank and file members, are all watching that and preparing uh, because, you know, there has to be a response. Uh, and there has to be a strategic plan to move forward if we do lose those rights. How do we proceed? Um, you know, so we'll see what happens with that. And I think also Trump, uh, the potential of Trump winning in November certainly poses a threat. Um, we have not been shy on this show of our cr criticism of Joe Biden. Um, you know, and I live in Alabama, so my vote will not matter. In November, so I'm not putting a whole lot of energy, mentally or otherwise, into it. But there's no disputing that should Trump win, things will go backwards in terms of the NLRB, uh, the Department of Labor, the other agencies that kind of interface with our labor movement um, and ultimately impact working people's lives. Uh, so, you know, those are a couple of big threats that are looming. And we've had these years of, of kind of labor resurgence, um, but those are going to be some of the, the biggest threats facing this more resurgent labor movement. It's going to be interesting to see how uh, the unions respond. Um, I have been very uh, pleased to see a lot of unions and folks in labor speaking out uh, for a ceasefire in Palestine and seeing this coalition growing of unions and locals and labor councils, right, that are coming together around this, that's promising. Um, and I think we have to have that kind of coordination uh, to address these big issues. And, you know, that Supreme Court case, keep your eyes on that, because mm -hmm. I think that is a, a big deal. Um, and, you know, uh, something that is worth mentioning maybe is that like the NLRA and the current labor law regime we have is sort of a a compromise, right? You know, it's it's a way to have some labor peace. And, you know, that's not to say that employers are in favor of it because they never have been, right? They would rather give up nothing. Uh, they were opposed to labor law reform in the 30s. They obviously weakened it in the 40s. We've been fighting it ever since to try to get rid of it. But it does provide labor peace to some degree and, and give some advantages to the employers in that respect. Uh, because before this, you know, wildcat, wildcat strikes uh, were much, much more common. You had sympathy strikes, which were much, much more common, uh, right? If, if basically all of your organizing is illegal, you know, what difference does it make which laws right. you're breaking? At, you know, at a certain point, okay, you're, you're, you're bucking the system. You might as well go, go all out. And, uh, you know, the labor organizing dynamics prior to the National Labor Relations Act were much more violent. 
there was a lot more violence involved. Um, and you had companies hiring gun thugs. Uh, you had local police departments and county sheriffs and even state militias uh, and troops that would be used against working people trying to organize. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I guess just what's on my mind is it seems we're, we're circling the drain in terms of going backwards into the Gilded Age. We already have Gilded Age levels of inequality and in wealth and income. Uh, we have these unaccountable robber barons who dominate society. We are sending children back into the workforce, right? So we thought we won the child labor issue a century ago, and yet we're going backwards. Um, and so are we going to go back to Gilded Age level union laws and labor laws? Uh, you know, it's a valid question. And so... Those are just some things that I think are, you know, kind of on my mind as I hear these numbers about the increased activity. Um, you know, my, my hope is that the increased activity is indicating that we have a labor movement more willing to fight and that there is more rank and file energy behind organizing. And, uh, you know, that's what it's going to take. We need working people getting engaged, getting involved. We need working people uniting across our differences to fight for a common agenda uh, because we have common interests as working people. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. But those are those are some things that are on my mind about that. That's going to be it for us today, folks. Appreciate your time. Find us online, tvlr.fm. Subscribe to our newsletter. We send you every single week, last week in Southern Labor and Boss Watch, uh, where we take a look at what workers and bosses were up to in the South every single week. Uh, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, all at The Valley Labor Report, tvlr.fm slash donate if you'd like to support the program. Reach out to us, tvlr.fm slash contact if yeah. you have any union news or if you would like to uh, sponsor the program. <clears throat> or if you just have questions, right? Uh, we have, have people who reach out to us who are union curious, yeah. uh, and we love that. That always warms our heart. Uh, sometimes uh, we have young folks who reach out to us for a little guidance, right? And that warms our heart as well. So feel free to reach out. Uh, I wanted to plug a couple of things real quick as we head out just to remind folks about uh, the labor notes trainings that are available out there remind folks that uh, indoor air care advocates, they are doing a lot of good work and advocacy. Mm. Uh, so go to IAQadvocates.org slash demand clean air. Uh, I think it's a really important issue. Uh, it's a workplace safety issue. It's a issue that affects our children. So get, it, get involved with them and, and find out what they're working on in terms of uh, clean air. And the Poor People's Campaign and the Selma Jubilee are both happening the first weekend in March. Uh, so there's lots of opportunities. If you are in Alabama, you want to head to Montgomery or head to Selma, uh, there'll be a lot of folks, a lot of, a lot of stuff to do there. Uh, really excited about this Southern Workers Assembly virtual discussion that they're hosting called Operation Dixie, Lessons for Southern Workers. Mm. They're doing that Thursday, February 29th at 6 o'clock p.m. Central Time. You can go to southernworker.org to learn more about that. But uh, I have registered. I'm looking forward to that. Um, and 
Alabama Rise holds its annual legislative day on April 2nd. That's a good opportunity to go to Montgomery and do some citizen lobbying. If you've never visited the state house, if you've never had a conversation with your legislator, uh, that's a good way to get involved and get engaged and learn more about the process and kind of see it up close and personal. Uh, and the AFL-CIO is holding its organizing institute. Well, they hold those all the time. They're going to have one in Birmingham this April. Mm. Uh, it's the same week as Labor Notes. So if you're not in Labor Notes, go to the organizing institute. All right. Yeah. And if you're in Alabama and you're not really sure, like, how do I get to the Organizing Institute, feel free to hit us up and we'll try to connect you with the right people. Uh, but we need people getting trained. Uh, we need people getting educated uh, and getting those skills. So definitely want to see some folks turn out for that event. Uh, and then that's all I have. Uh, I would just say that there's a lot of folks out there doing good work. There's opportunities to get involved. Uh, so if you're listening and and you're not sure uh, where to turn, there are places and there are people out there and there are groups and coalitions doing good work. Um, and I just encourage you to do what you can. If we all do what we can, we can all get what we need. All right. See you next week. <laughs>